0: In 2011, a lady named Mary Napoli went grocery shopping in Michigan. And uh, she was after a five-pound bag of flour. It's a pretty simple trip to the grocery store, she thought. And she returned home and was not feeling very well, so she disappeared for about five minutes max. And when she returned, uh, she found quite a mess in her kitchen, in her living room. And if you look here, this is Zachary and Andrew, a three-year-old and 16-month-old boys who uh, you can see what they did with the flower. And, um, you know, and y- you could overreact or you could just get a, f- a phone out and start taking pictures and make video of it. So that's what she did. And if you watch the video, you just hear her going, oh, my, oh, boy, oh, boy. And, uh, and, and yeah, he comes, he comes up and he goes, see? You know, as if, as if she couldn't see. And... Um, this, this went on for several minutes, and she was on Today Show and, and all of this. And um, when I look at that, it makes me think this. Without boundaries, things get messy. Now, she may have given them boundaries, and they disobeyed those boundaries. But without boundaries, things get messy really fast. And it's that way in life as well. Without boundaries on a road, you could get in trouble really quick. Without a yellow line and a white line or guardrails, you could get in trouble. You could have accidents. See, boundaries in life are important, and they're there to keep us on the road. Good doctrine is like a set of clear boundaries that keep us on the road of truth. And so when, you, when we talk about theology in the, in the early church and as it was developing, it's really about putting a set of boundaries in place to say, you can't go outside these boundaries. You can stay within these boundaries, and you can talk about Jesus, but this is the proper way to think about God. And so tonight we're going to look in the fourth and fifth centuries AD, and we're going to learn that the boundaries were not clearly developed yet. Now, you remember several weeks ago we looked at the Trinitarian controversy, and we learned from the Council of Nicaea, and just as, as pastors taught us so well on that subject also, that that, that council determined or decided. Uh, it had already been determined because that's who God is. But they decided, we as a church believe Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. That was the, the key takeaway from Nicaea. But after that, people began wondering, well, how does Jesus exist as God and man? How does, how does he, how do those two natures coexist? And um, there were good intentions. There were good questions. But uh, unfortunately, things got messy really fast. And so there had to be the fourth ecumenical council, which we're going to talk about later, that came and had to formulate a statement of faith. So these were the kind of questions they were asking. How is Jesus both the Son of God and the Son of Man at the same time? How, how, how does that work? How could he be perfect and divine, yet still be human and ordinary? And so um, that's, that's what they were thinking about. Now, the key verse in the, this whole controversy is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did the deity of Jesus correspond with the humanity of Jesus? Did, did humanity in any way compromise his deity? Uh, was Jesus just flesh, skin, bones, you know, blood and organs? And was he just a, a skeleton of a body? Or did, did he have a fully human mind? You know, all of these are questions that were being asked, and you may have had some of those questions too at some point. You think, you know, okay, was he really fully human, just like, like I'm fully human? And so that, those are great questions. And so um, one portion of Scripture that highlights this tension is Mark 4, 35 through 41. You see Jesus saying, hey, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they start crossing, and then they, then they find themselves in the midst of a storm, and guess who's sleeping? Jesus is sleeping. So you see a clear picture of his humanity, tired from doing ministry. You also see in John four, remember, said he was weary from his journey, and um, so you see him sleeping. But then you also see him in, um, in in Mark four. They wake him up, and he says, "Peace, be still." And just like that, there's there's a calm, there's a hush. And then you read in in Psalm one twenty one four, where it says, "Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep." So you begin thinking, how does this work? Is he if God doesn't get tired, why is Jesus sleeping? Well, because He's God and man, and that's what the early church was was trying to figure out. How do, how do these two fit together? So there was debate and discussion over how do, how do these two natures coexist? Did the deity of Jesus control His mind? Was He completely human? And there were three. Um, main responses to those questions, and we're going to talk about those, and they were all found unacceptable by the early church. They were, they, were, they were determined they were heretical, and so we're going to see how did the early church respond to those questions. There were typically two extremes that the responses gravitated toward. The first was came from Alexandria, North Africa, and they said we're going to emphasize the deity of Christ so much that the humanity of Christ is, is hardly emphasized at all. And it's really absorbed by the deity. Now, the second extreme would be characterized by the, the church of Antioch. And it was to highlight the full deity of Christ and full humanity of Christ. So now it seemed like you're talking about two different people here. You're not talking about the same person. So those were the two sides. And so the key is, what's the middle road? What's the middle road that the church should be on? And that's, that's where we're going to discover tonight. What did that look like? So shortly after the middle of the 4th century, there was a man named Apollinaris of Laodicea. And he tried to answer these questions. How did the humanity and deity of Jesus coexist together? And so he, uh, he was a, known as a godly man. He was not a bad person who was out to destroy the church. He uh, had a great reputation. He was a friend of Athanasius. He supported Nicaea. So he believed up until that point, believed correctly about Jesus uh, he, he uh, was devout he was educated everything looked really good for him he was respected even by his opponents which tells you a little bit about him but um, but as he began looking at scripture he began articulating things about christ that would that would be considered out of bounds as as as, as it were and so uh, you know it's crucial to know what you believe and why you believe it and you, any discerning person at times is going to want to know, well, tell me, why, why is it that you believe that way? Tell me, why is it you believe that way about Jesus? And so the more we know about these kinds of things, the more that we can answer um, an educational response. And so the, let's talk a little bit about Apollinaris. In his, in his estimation, the deity of Jesus replaced the human mind of Jesus. So in his mind, uh, in his estimation, Jesus could not have had a fully human mind. The, the deity of Jesus overpowered the humanity of Jesus. And so the, really the only human element of Jesus was his body. His will, his mind, his spirit, all of that was, was divine. It was not fully human. He would, now, in, in his defense, he was trying to protect the divinity of Jesus. So in his mind, the humanity had to be different than other people. He felt if Jesus had a human mind, he could not have remained sinless. He, he would have had to be sinful. Now, why, now why would that be? Well, because Adam and Eve they ch- willingly chose to disobey God, and there, it was a, it was a mental decision. They knew what God had said, but then they willingly disobeyed. So Apollinaris thought, "Hey, Jesus can't have a human mind because that's where sin originated from." So you can follow you can follow his kind of his train of thought here, and so it's important to know why people believe the way they do. It's always great to ask questions. You know, instead of just thinking, well, you know, that's just dumb. You don't make any sense. Just ask questions. Tell me, why is it that you believe that way? What, what led you to that conclusion? And you'll often will discover that there's, there's typically a reason people believe the way they do. So Apollinaris, his view emphasized the unity of Jesus. He felt that to believe Jesus was fully human, fully divine, meant to present Jesus as two persons instead of one. And so his view is often called the word flesh model of Christology is what, is what it's called. And so he sacrificed the humanity of Jesus for the unity of Jesus. And now let's go a little bit deeper as to why he may have uh, felt this way. Um, he was influenced by the Arians on how he viewed Jesus, even though he opposed Arianism. Earlier in his career as a bishop, he served as a reader under a man named Theodotus. Theodotus was an Arian. And he was the bishop of Laodicea. And so as Apollinaire studied under him, he, began, he was influenced by his views. The Arians believed that Jesus became flesh, but he did not have a rational human soul. His deity replaced the human one. So Jesus became flesh, but he did not become a man in the, in the view of the Arians. And so, uh, boy, just a great word of caution there. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you're reading. Because those people, I know there's all kinds of great resources and sermons and oh, there's a lot of great things out there, but you got to be careful who you're listening to. Because here's Apollinaris trying to learn, trying to grow, and now he's influenced by an Arian. And next thing you know, he starts adopting the way he, he thought about Christ. And so it's not enough just to say, well, they're teaching the Bible. Well, Apollinaris taught the Bible. It's not enough to say, well, they, they're preaching from the Bible. The real question is, how are they interpreting the Bible? How are they interpreting it? Are they interpreting it correctly? Does it match up with other portions of Scripture? So important. And um, you really got to use wisdom. I, don't know, I just have a small number of people that I, you know, kind of listen to regularly. You, you, you really just, just got to say, God, just give me wisdom. Help me. And so, the, and so as Apollinaris looked at Scripture, he felt like, uh, especially when he looked at Romans 7, you see the battle between the flesh and the spirit he felt like, you know what, there's no way Jesus could have had a human mind. There's, there's no way because Jesus would then have been sinful and Jesus was not sinful. And so, uh, therefore, he, just, he, he had to have a divine mind. So the human mind is prone to impure thoughts. And since Jesus was sinless, he, he could not have had a human mind. This was his logic. And so when Jesus was born, his flesh was fused together with his deity. So there was, there was only one nature for Apollinaris. There was one nature, not two. And so he saw this as an issue of salvation. If the deity of Jesus and his humanity were separate, then there would be a son of God and there'd be a son of Mary, but there'd not be one one person who's the same. They had to be unified in order for man to be saved. And so Apollinaris looked at this verse in John 17, 19. He said, Jesus said, 'And, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so Apollinaris goes, see, Jesus did not say he sanctified his humanity and his deity. He just said he sanctified himself. So he said, see, there's only one nature. There's not two. So he's he's using scripture, okay? He's using scripture to validate, to prove his point. And so uh, because he only referred himself as having one nature, Apollinaris said, you know, he's got a divine mind. Now, this heresy goes back to about 352 A.D., uh, it didn't really become a public issue until 362, about 10 years beyond that, To 372, it was widespread, it was controversial. So how did the church respond to this teaching? Well, you remember several weeks ago, we talked about the Cappadocian fathers, the great Cappadocians. We talked about Basil the Great, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and then their friend Gregory of Nazianzus. So those, mainly the two Gregories, responded to um, Apollinarius' teaching, which we'll talk about in a minute, but in general... This is what the church said. They said, Apollinaris is not talking about the real Jesus. He's not talking about the Jesus in scripture because um, uh, he's talking about a Jesus that only appeared to be human. And next they said, if the mind and will of Jesus were not fully human, then it must have been something completely abnormal. Third, the church said, the Apollinarian view that rejected a human psychology in Jesus Contradicted what's seen in Scripture. You remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem. We're talking about someone who had emotions, who who is human, who slept, as we just read, who ate, fully human things, and said, um, you know, that just doesn't match up with with what we see in Scripture. But the most significant response that the church said was, um, Apollinaris' view of Jesus fails to meet the qualifications for redemption. No one could be saved by trusting in, in the Jesus that Apollinaris presented. And so the two Gregories, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, they had a really strong response to Apollinaris, and it was Gregory of Nazianzus who really had his finger on the pulse and pointed out the real challenge of Apollinaris' teaching. And you probably already figured this out, but if, one, if Gregory said if there's only one aspect of Jesus' human nature missing, such as the possession of a, of a normal human mind, then he wasn't fully human. There's, and in what sense was he human? And so Gregory believed it was the human mind that was in the greatest need of salvation because humanity entered sin by way of the mind. And so this is what um, the most well-known of any of Gregory Nazianzus' writings, this one phrase is powerful. He said this, "'What has not been assumed cannot be restored. It is what is united with God that is saved. What What has not been assumed cannot be restored.'" In other words, if Jesus didn't have a human mind, then the human mind cannot be redeemed. Only what has been assumed is what can be saved, what can be restored. And so the original sin of Adam occurred in the mind. And so um, he said Jesus had had to have a fully human mind so that our minds could be restored and redeemed. And so um, for Gregory, the incarnation of Christ was great news because it meant that Jesus was completely human, full human mind, human will, human spirit, everything. So because of that, all of humanity can be healed and transformed. And so Jesus had a complete human nature. So that was the first response. Then Gregory of Nyssa said this. He said, By becoming exactly what we are, he, that is Jesus, united the human race through himself to God. While according to an unknown critic, which he's talking about Apollinaris, he used his incorruptible body to save men's corruptible bodies. It was necessary for Jesus to have both, that is, to be fully divine and fully man. He gave his body for men's bodies and his soul for men's souls. Christ possessed human nature in its completeness. Man, that's that's good theology right there. And so Gregory Nazianzus also went on to say that um, Jesus became fully human in every way, except he did not have any sin. So that when you read Luke two fifty two. When it says Jesus grew, increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, Gregory said, hey, that's talking about his body, but that's also talking about his soul. That he, he developed in, in every way, just, just as we do. Uh, fully God, fully man. So Apollinaris' teaching on Jesus was condemned as heresy by Rome in 377, and Alexandria in 378, and uh, in Antioch 379, and finally the Cons- Council of Constantinople in 381. And so Apollinarius' views were considered false teaching. And you would think, man, it was all over. It, everything was good after that, but it wasn't. There were two more. That was, that was just the first. There were two more um, also false teachings on how did Jesus exist as God and man. So the second one, based on John 1.14, or as the word became flesh, was called Nestorianism. Nestorianism. So it was associated with a man named Nestorius. Now, we're not even sure if... if Nestorius really affirmed all that's accredited to him. Now that'll bless you, won't it? Something's accredited to you, but it just, it's, it's uh, I'll probably not get into that. It's kind of like Calvinism, you know, he, uh, that's, that'll be later. That'll come later. So you just come in maybe another year or two and we'll talk about Calvinism. So, um, but this Nestorianism, this is what Nestorius taught. He was bishop of Constantinople, he was known as a very strong preacher. He had a vision to reform the church in Constantinople. He had a passion to eliminate false teaching. Um, he, uh, he emphasized the full deity of Jesus and the full humanity of Christ. So now it appeared like there were two different people. So you had Apollinaris said, no, 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 you, you, there's just one. And so now Nestorius goes, no, 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 there's two. He's fully divine and he's fully human, but they don't really coexist together. So now you've got, we're talking about two different people, and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't right either. And so he became bishop of Constantinople on April the 10th, 428. He had been a, been a monk in Antioch. Uh, he was known to be impulsive, dogmatic, and uh, he got himself in trouble at the end of his first year when he attacked the view that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is called Theotokos. Now, Theotokos means mother of God. The term Theos means God. Uh, Tecatos means childbearing or giving birth. And so guys like Athanasius and Alexander, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Apollinaris, even, they had, they had seen Mary and called her the mother of God. Does that make anybody uncomfortable that, that she's called the mother of God? Okay, it shouldn't, but I I'm just wanted you to feel the tension of that a little bit. Okay, so the, the, she's called. Now, the reason it makes you uncomfortable is because you probably hear that through the lens of Roman Catholic theology, okay? And so you, you think of, of, no, does that mean that's elevating Mary? That, that's not what it means. It's actually elevating Jesus. It's saying that, he, that uh, it actually comes from Luke 143. Remember in Luke where Elizabeth, it says she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she said, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So is Mary the mother of God? Yeah, she's the mother of God. and so. But, but I understand, And when you first hear it, you go, no, wait a minute. Now are, we, are, we, are, we, are we exalting Mary here? No, we're, we're exalting Jesus. But we're saying that when he was born, he was God. He wasn't just human. He was also God. So, so Nestorius came out and said, no, no, no. Mary is not the mother of God. And so that stirred up all kind of controversy. So there was a man named Anastasius who was a priest. That Nestorius brought with him to Constantinople. And Anastasius rejected and said, No, 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 Mary's not the mother of God. And so uh, Nestorius supported him and even rebuked one of the leading pr- uh, priests in Constantinople. And, and that, just, that just created all kind of controversy. And so Nestorius said, Hey, Mary may be the recipient of God, but she's not the mother of God. And um, well, there's a man named Cyril who, who got a hold, who heard about what was going on with Nestorius. And um, Nestorius said, hey, you know, God could not have a mother. Mary bore a man. He was the vehicle of divinity, but she didn't, she didn't give birth to God. And, um, and so uh, Nestorius believed there was two natures and two persons, one divine, one human. Um, the human nature and person were born from Mary. The divine was not born from Mary. And so that, that was his view. So Cyril, who's the bishop of Alexandria, he heard about Nestorius's views, and he jumped all over it. He had been bishop in Alexandria since 412, and um, there was there was a tension between Alexandria and Constantinople. Constantinople, from Alexandria's perspective, was viewed as this you know upstart that had all this power really quick, and Alexandria had been around for centuries, so there was just some kind of some bitterness toward Constantinople, and so when Alex when when um, Cyril heard of what was going on in Constantinople he thought all right well let's just let's just see this is my chance to now I'm going to show you who has the upper hand now and so so he he started uh, wrote a letter to uh, Nestorius and urged him to change his views and uh, he said hey the, the term Theotokos was that's a logical conse- uh, consequence of Mary's status as a human mother of God of Jesus because Jesus is God and so he said, hey, if you can't affirm Mary as the, the mother of God, then, then you're not talking about the deity. You're, you're saying Jesus is not divine, essentially, is what he was saying. And so um, uh, if Jesus was fully God, then it was entirely appropriate for Mary to be called the mother of God, is what Cyril was saying. So Nestorius replied in a letter to Cyril, and said, hey, you don't understand the, the teaching of Nicaea. There's just back and forth. You, you don't understand what, what Nicaea was talking about. In Nicaea, as Nestorius said, it said there was one Lord, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. You're not talking about two. He said there's one. And so uh, they're placed side by side, but the human experiences of Jesus did not belong to the, the divinity of Jesus. And so Nestorius saw two distinct natures side by side, but they were not united. Okay, you with me? So Apollinaris said so there's one, Nestorius says there's two, but they're not united. And so Cyril had the support of the Roman Empire. He had the political power in his behalf. And so they called a, a, um, a the third council of the church in Ephesus in 431. And they had Nestorius condemned uh, as a heretic. He didn't even get to represent himself. And uh, he was... Uh, he was um, uh, for the rest of his life, spent his life in exile, as a, uh, in Antioch, and finally in Petra. And uh, he continued to write letters and tracts, uh, explaining, his, defending his position. But that was kind of the end of his public influence. And so two years later, in 433, there was a, a document um, that was called the Formulary of Reunion. And it was signed by Cyril. And the Formulary of Reunion declared that Christ was a union of two natures. So you had Pollinaris, you had Nestorius, and the formulary said, no, no, no. Christ is a union of two natures. He's fully God, he's perfect God, and he's perfect man. And he's of one substance with the Father in his Godhead and of one substance with us in his, his humanity. Christ was one person with two distinct natures, fully man and fully God. And so the formulary affirmed that Mary was indeed to be recognized as the mother of God, on the grounds that when, when Jesus was born, he had two natures. He was fully God. He was fully man. And so um, that was the second attempt to answer the question that had been dealt with. Now, you had Apollinaris and you had Nestorius. And then there, there came along a guy named Eutychus. Eutychus. This was in the 440s. So Eutychus... Um, well, this uh, a system of teaching began, was called Eutychianism, and it was associated with Eutychus. Again, it's not clearly, uh, we're not clear if Eutychianism, if Eutychus actually believed Eutychianism. But that's a tough one, isn't it? So you better be careful what you're saying out there, because you might, if something may come back and say, well, no, 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 that's, we're going to put his name on it. That's what he believed. He was the head of a monastery in Constantinople in the middle of the 5th century. He confessed two natures before the incarnation of Jesus, but only one after. Are you with me? So before Jesus was born, he said, no, no, Jesus had two natures, but after he was born, he only had one. Okay, so that, that's a problem, right? We, we just said there's, there's two. Now he's saying, no, 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 there's only one. And so this is the head of a monastery in Constantinople, a real influential city. So the human nature had been absorbed by the divine nature during the incarnations. the way he saw it. He believed the Word was made flesh, but the human nature of Jesus was not of the same substance as ours. Eutychus believed the formulary of reunion was not an acceptable addition to the Nicene Creed. He saw the divine Word is clearly dominant and denied the humanity of Jesus. So he had gone in the complete opposite direction from Nestorius. So his teaching was condemned at a local synod in Constantinople in November 448. And uh, he protested. He said, hey, this, this trial has not been fairly managed. And then so he appealed to the bishops of Jerusalem and Rome and Alexandria. Now, the bishop of Rome during that time was a guy named Leo, Leo I, who the pastor uh, told us about him last week. He had incredible influence. And he's really, some people see him as the first pope. And so um, he was the one, remember pastor said he went out to Attila the Hun and Attila said, okay, I'm going to defeat the city, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm just going to take, I'm just going to take whatever's valuable to us. We're just going to take it. That was Leo. And so, uh, Eutychus, uh, uh appealed to Leo. And so Leo became familiar with what Eutychus was teaching and determined, Hey, this guy's an error. This is not Orthodox Christian teaching. And so Leo sat down and, and put together some, some things on paper, and it became known as Leo's Tome. You've heard of Leo's Tome? That was Leo's response to uh, Eutychus about teaching about Jesus. And so Leo said, hey, your teaching is an error. To speak one nature of Jesus after the incarnation or to deny the humanity of Jesus was, uh, is, is out of bounds. If Christ was not truly one of us, if he did not genuinely become a human being, he could not have conquered the sin and death that plagued the human condition, is what Leo said. In order for human salvation to be attained, there had to be a union of two distinct natures. He stated it this way. The incarnate Christ was complete in what belongs to him, complete in what belongs to us. And so Eutychus had gotten things turned around. There were, he said the, there, were, uh, there were not two natures before or there were two natures before and one after, um, he, he said no. He said there's two before, one after, in an, in essence, but we believe there was one before, two after. So he had gotten it backwards. And uh, Leo's tome affirmed that Jesus emptied himself by becoming a man, but he did not surrender being God. And so all of this, all these three views, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, it all led to the Council of of Chalcedon in 451. Now, I used to say Chalcedon. I, don't, I, don't, I don't really don't think it matters. But uh, one of my friends got corrected one time. Apparently, a professor said, he said Chalcedon. He goes, you mean Chalcedon? And so, I, I just, just you call it whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. I just thought it was funny. Um, so, Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon was the church's fourth ecumenical council, 451. It was originally scheduled for Nicaea but was moved to Chalcedon because it was closer to the capital city. It was easier for the emperor to to attend. The assembly began on October 8th and met in 15 sessions until November the 10th. It was attended by over 500 bishops, mostly from the east. And the most important contribution of this council was the statement of faith that it produced. The statement of faith provided guardrails that we talked about earlier. The statement of faith provided guardrails that taught us This is how we think and and believe about Jesus. In between here, this this is correct doctrine. This is how you believe about Jesus. Anything outside of these guardrails is is not orthodoxy. It's not not acceptable uh, belief about Jesus. And so the bishops uh, present there at Chalcedon wanted to uh, affirm the teaching and statements of Nicaea in 325, Constantinople 381, Ephesus 431, while adding clarity to the Christological controversy. So all these councils were recognized as being authoritative to the entire, ter- entire church. Leo's tome was read, and after some debate, it was approved as orthodox. So after much discussion, there came a new definition of faith or a clarification of what the church held to be true. So I want to read it to you just so you're in the know of what, what happened there. It's kind of long, but it'll, it'll make sense here. So it says, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we confess, and all with one voice, Teach our Lord Jesus Christ to be one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same consisting of a rational soul that is a human soul and, and a body of one substance with the Father as concerning the Godhead, the same of one substance with us concerning the manhood, like us in all things apart from sin, begotten of the Father before the ages, as concerning the Godhead, the same in the last days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, the bearer of God, the mother of God, as concerning the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And you can read the rest of it. But that became the orthodox response to here is how it is acceptable to believe about Jesus. He is fully God. He is fully man. Now, did this, did this statement answer every question that we would have? No. It, does, it doesn't explain every single thing about how God exists as Trinitarian. But what it does say is, is this is what is acceptable. You can believe that Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. They coexist together. We may not, all, we may not understand that until we get to heaven but we believe it because that's how God has revealed himself in scripture. And that's how Jesus has revealed himself in scripture. And so by, put it, by producing this uh, profession of faith, it, it, it uh, refuted all three of those false teachings that we, that we talked about earlier. Um, and so that was the Council of Chalcedon. And so uh, let me give you just a couple of application points, and, uh, and then we'll be done. So based on what we've learned tonight, uh, here's the first thing. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, we can experience total redemption. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, we can experience total redemption. Uh, Jesus has redeemed every single part of us. So I, but whatever your struggle is tonight, some of you, maybe, maybe it is your mind, maybe it is thought life or um, you know, just these self-defeating thoughts or just whatever your struggle is, and you think, well, it's just always going to be this way. I'm just always going to have this struggle. I'm just, this is just what it means to be human. Well, Jesus was completely human. He had a human mind. And, you know, when Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that can be possible because Jesus has redeemed your mind. He's redeemed my mind. In Romans 6:11, it says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We can be alive to God in Christ Jesus because he was fully human, and he still is fully human. And one day he'll come back. And so I want you just to just just think about the implication of that, that whatever it is that you're struggling with tonight, there is victory because Christ was fully human. There is victory in him. So you and I can walk in the victory that he has purchased for us over any sin that you're struggling with. There is complete victory in him. And so, boy, live in, in, that, in that truth that uh, he has, has purchased us, and we are free in him. And so the next thing is to express gratitude to those who articulate Christian truth. Express gratitude to those who articulate Christian truth. We're the beneficiaries. You think about these guys we've talked about, the Cappadocian fathers and Athanasius and uh, Leo and some of these others that were involved, and eventually Augustine, who we're planning to talk about Augustine next week. I'll give you a little commercial there. Um, you can't talk about the early church without talking about Augustine. And, um, or if Pastor says Augustine, he's probably right. It, it, either way, it's the same person. And so uh, we're going to talk about him next week. But um, we are the beneficiaries of what these guys took time to do. They spent time just trying to understand, what, what, what does this mean to be Jesus, to be fully God and fully man? And so now we get to be strengthened in our faith because of people like him. And so, man, take time to express gratitude to, to our pastor, to other pastors you may have had at, at some other point in your life or pastors you've had here. You know, I think about guys like Doctor, like Robbie Zacharias and Dr. Al Mohler, some of these guys that are out, I mean, they're out in the real world. You know, they're on CNN and, and the Fox News and, um, you know, uh, Dr. Zacharias will go to these, you know, Yale and some of these Ivy League schools where there's just sometimes just hostility against Christianity. And there they are being a voice for truth and, and explaining this is what it means to believe about God. This is the Christian worldview. And um, this, this past year, Dr. Moeller did an ask anything tour. He went to University of Louisville and went to UCLA and students could ask anything. And he's just up there answering their questions. You think, man, that takes a lot of courage to go to Southern California and just let them ask whatever it is they want to ask, especially on a college campus. Uh, man, we, these are guys we need to be praying for and just encouraging them, maybe through an email or just a note to say, hey, I appreciate your ministry. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for, for spending the time to study this so that I can understand it. And thank you for, for always being a, an advocate for truth out in the real world. Well, in February 2017, there was a man named Manfred Kick. Manfred Kick was driving his Tesla Model S, S, whatever that is, Tesla Model S. He was driving down the German Autobahn near Munich, and he noticed something strange. He noticed there was a Volkswagen Passat ahead of him, and it was banging up against the guardrails, and he got close enough to it, and he noticed the driver was slumped over the steering wheel. And so he called emergency services and they were on their way but until they got there he thought man this, this you know this this car could run into this, this is dangerous so he sped up and got in front of the car and slowed down a little bit until the the Volkswagen bumper touched uh, the front of his bumper touched the back of his bumper and he just slowly just stopped and eventually that car came to a standstill And so he got out and the driver was unconscious apparently was taken to the hospital, was treated for stroke symptoms and internal injuries. Two days later, the CEO, CEO of Tesla sent a tweet of appreciation, said um, an appreciation for what the Tesla driver had done. He said, hey, any, any damages to your car, we'll fix it for free. And so um, the guardrail had kept this Volkswagen on the road. It kept him out of trouble. But it was the driver who brought him to safety. And so there are all kinds of resources out there that will help you stay on the road of truth in terms of doctrine. But we need people who will take time to carefully and patiently talk with those who have hard questions and say, "Hey, here's what it means to be Christian. Here's what it means to think rightly about Jesus Christ, and here's why. And here's here's what the Bible says about Jesus." Those are the kind of people we need we need to be in this in this day and time because there's people that they don't believe. And, and they're not afraid to say they don't believe. And so they need to be Christians who are informed, who can say, hey, let me tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man. And because he's fully God and fully man, he can redeem you and he can flat change your life.